This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I actually heard a heartwarming Christmas story yesterday. Uh, A friend of mine, a colleague at work, went to the mall with kids and discovered to her great dismay, I mean, you know, it's chaos there. Day after Christmas, right? Everybody's returning stuff, uh, that she'd lost her wallet. Four different people got involved, one summoning the other and then facilitating it to the next person so that when my colleague went to the lost and found, figuring that's a long shot, there the wallet was, totally intact, not a dollar missing, uh, and in fact, when she tried to offer uh, a reward, people refused to take it, or at least the last person refused to take it. And, you know, just seems like a Hallmark movie or the ending to a Hallmark movie, but there are people who are kind and don't try to, and try to help out others and, and, and don't keep things that don't belong to them. Um, you know, I was in there yesterday at Fox. Uh, I did talk about TikTok on Martha McCallum's show, and then I did the special report panel. Um, and the leadoff topic was the topic that I just squeezed into yesterday's podcast for you saying, you know, I haven't even digested this yet, but I think it's going to be pretty big news and special report ended up leading with it. And that is the latest installment of the Twitter files having to do with COVID-19. So I will come back to that a little later. Um, I was a little more prepared, but then you face a different challenge. The challenge when you, you, you've seen it, you know, when a court opinion comes out and everybody's got to be live because you can't be two seconds behind the other guy, right? So you see somebody standing inside the courthouse flipping pages of an opinion, looking for a key phrase or word or line. And that's, you know, that's what it looks like behind the scenes. Usually you don't get to see the sausage being made. The challenge here, I'd obviously had some more time to go over it was, how do you compress it for television? You know, given the nature of um, the, there are two other people on the panel. It was uh, Jessica Tarloff and Molly Hemingway, plus Rich Edson was subbing for Brett Baer. You know, how could I give you the meat of it, knowing full well that, you know, it's television, you're listening to it, you're not seeing it, and that time would be short because everybody obviously wants to weigh in with their opinion. So I'll come back to that. Um, I talked yesterday about, Carrie Lake and her uh, lawsuit uh, in Arizona being thrown out by a judge who said she submitted no evidence, no credible evidence of fraud in losing the governor's race there by 17,000 votes. Well, now Maricopa County, biggest county in the state, has filed a motion for sanctions against Carrie Lake, uh, which was then joined by the Democratic governor-elect, Katie Hobbs, who ran against Blake, and uh, basically wants about $37,000 in attorney's fees and expenses paid as a sanction. In other words, if this was such a frivolous lawsuit you filed that the judge just throws it out, doesn't even go to trial, then I shouldn't have to bear the burden of having to hire a lawyer 
and defending myself. But here's the interesting twist to it. I knew I'd get to it eventually, right? Um, Carrie Lake tweeted, but then deleted a tweet critical of the judge in the case, the county judge in the case. She said, the guy's name is Judge Thompson, Peter Thompson. And the dismissal of Carrie Lake's election lawsuit shows voter disenfranchisement no longer matters. And quoting somebody is saying, legal experts believe his decision was ghostwritten. They suspect top left-wing attorneys like Mark Elias emailed him what to say. Mark Elias uh, noted on Twitter that Lake had deleted the accusation against the judge. He says, uh, I was asked, a few days ago, I was asked what conspiracy theory Carrie Lake would offer for why she lost her election contest lawsuit. It's even more insane than I predicted. So, I mean, that's a pretty serious charge. You could say, you know, the judge uh, isn't smart enough to write a good decision or it's so deeply flawed or something like that, but ghostwritten, too dumb to do it, and uh, basically had other people write the decision for him. I, you know, not a wise move. The only wise move there is in deleting the tweet. Speaking of people who are not happy, three, two, one, okay, uh, Donald Trump firing back, having to do with this New York Magazine piece that I shared, uh, I believe, yesterday as well. You know, because I worked over the holiday, I don't know what the hell day it is. Anyway, uh, it's in New York Magazine, and, and that immediately means it's 100 times more important to Trump than would be the case for a comparable magazine that's published in California or Florida, because it's his hometown. I mean, he lives in Florida now, Florida resident, but, you know, he grew up in Queens, and then he moved to Manhattan, and that's where he got into fights with, you know, Ed Koch and... Leona Helmsley and Al Sharpton and and others. In any event, it was basically one of this one of these pieces that says, "Isn't it sad that Trump is kind of lonely and not doing much at Mar-a-Lago?" And quoted four different unnamed advisors and or ex-Trump world people as saying, and the one that I quoted first off was, "He just goes, plays golf, comes back, and f's off." He has retreated to the golf course and to Mar-a-Lago. His world has gotten much smaller. Excuse me. So, here's what the former president of the United States had to say on Truth Social. I agreed to do a short telephone interview for a once very good, but now on its last legs and failing, New York Magazine. You know, he always, uh, New York Times is failing. Uh, Anytime that a publication he doesn't like, Write something, he just says they're failing. National Review, they're failing, can't stay in business. Okay. Trump continues, the reporter was a shaky and unattractive whack job, known as tough, but dumb as a rock, who actually wrote a decent story about me a long time ago. Her name, Olivia Newsy. Anyway, the story was fake news. Her, quote, anonymous sources don't exist. True with many writers. And I'm happily fighting hard for our great USA. Well... I shouldn't even have to say this, but you take a look at a picture of Alicia Newsy. Nobody is uh, going to say she's unattractive, but who cares? He should, it's not a charge you should make whether she is or she isn't. Secondly, he, he, she somehow managed to write a good story about him that he liked. Is that why he talked to her? And finally, you know, he used to do this all the time. The unnamed sources don't exist. Well, as I've said many times, anonymous sources uh, are sometimes wrong. 
have an agenda. They're overused in political journalism. They also can be indispensable for investigative journalism. And so, just the magazine's failing, she's a whack job, and on and on. Now, fun... <laughs> Ironically enough, this came after a previous rant. See, you get one good one a day, basically. But I don't give you, like, the six or seven. I, I give you the cream of the crop. La creme de la creme. All right, so... Back uh, yesterday, Trump was also responding to a piece in the New York Post, which used to be his go-to paper when he wanted to leak something. And he said, here's his defense, and I'll tell you what he's responding to. He specifically asked his daughter Ivanka and her husband, Jared Kushner, not to be part of his 2024 presidential campaign. And that reports that they decided to snub him are, wait for it, fake news. So the New York Post, which, by the way, has gotten quite critical of the foreign president, uh, certainly in the last few weeks and also after January 6th, published a headline declaring Trump begging Jared Ivanka to join him on stage for campaign launch, colon, sources. Uh, The first sentence of the story, Javanka seemed to want no part of Trump 2024. Where President Donald Trump spent part of daughter T- Tiffany's lavish Mar-a-Lago wedding this past weekend, trying to convince his much-loved elder daughter Ivanka and son-in-law Jared Kushner to be on stage with him when he announces his third consecutive run for the presidency at the Palm Beach Resort, sources told the Post. And then the finger in the eye. Um, so far, the man known for the art of the deal has not closed this one. Okay, so here's... Trump, contrary to fake news reporting, I never asked Jared or Ivanka to be part of the 2024 campaign for president. In fact, specifically asked them not to do it. Too mean and nasty with the fake and corrupt news and having to deal with some absolutely horrendous sleazebags in the world of politics and beyond. There's never been anything like this ride before. They should not be further subjected to it. I ran twice, getting millions more votes a second time, parentheses, rigged. And I'm doing it again. So I guess we would just say he's on message. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Story number one. This George Santos story. This is the guy who is the... Congressman-elect from Long Island, parts of Queens. He's a Republican. And he's expected to take his seat in the House of Representatives. So you may recall my talking about the New York Times doing some fact-checking on his resume and deciding that almost everything he claimed was made up. Not that they didn't like him. They made phone calls. That's what reporters do. If, if there was a decent, decent Democratic campaign running against him, they would have called up. Oh, Goldman Sachs, uh, George Santos, have any record of him working there? Uh, or the college he uh, said he uh, attended. Uh, do you have any record of him graduating or even being there? Or um, Citigroup, any record of a guy named George Santos? So the initial reaction from the Santos camp was, uh, New York Times, you know, just trying to impose its agenda, fake news, smear me. But I knew he didn't have anything or he would have come out with it. 
if he had anything at all to contradict the idea that he is a serial fabricator. I'm not going to mince words here. Listen to this. So now he came out and did some interviews, one with the New York Post, with others, doesn't talk to the Times, which broke the story, and obviously had asked to talk to him. My sins here are embellishing my resume, Santos told the tabloid Post. Okay, embellishing is a very soft word. If you say you got a B minus and it was actually a C, maybe that's embellishing your resume. Embellishing your resume is, um, you know, you, you graduated from college but you're a few credits short, or something like that. This is not embellishing. He admitted, this is now no longer in dispute. George Santos admits, lying about graduating from college, making misleading claims. That's the way the New York Times story is putting it. No, he lied. He lied about working for a Citigroup or Goldman Sachs. I'll get to more of that in a second. He once said he had a piece of family-owned property, uh, 13 properties, Now he said, nah, I wasn't a landlord. I didn't know anything. The first openly gay Republican to win a House seat as a non-incumbent, he also acknowledged owing thousands of dollars in unpaid rent and a years-long marriage. He never disclosed. More quotes from the Post interview. I dated women in the past. I married a woman. It's personal stuff. Uh, He said, I'm okay with my sexuality. People change. Okay. Um, But the level of deception here And there's still one mystery that has yet to be solved. And wait, I'm not even done with the other things he claimed. So hang on a second. Um, He said he had a lot of uh, financial difficulties. And he owed thousands of dollars to landlords and creditors. Uh, However, he was not able to explain, or did not explain, how by this year, when he made was actually his second bid for that house seat, he was able to lend $700,000 to his congressional campaign. He also denied committing a crime anywhere in the world. The Times says that Brazilian court records show he was writing hot checks. Uh, that has been years ago. Uh, the documents also show he confessed to the crime and was charged, but then authorities couldn't locate him, so the case was never quite closed. Um, Santos also went after CNN and the Ford saying, for saying that he may have misled voters about his account of his Jewish ancestry. So here's the deal. Uh, he had maternal grandparents, he says, were born in Europe, emigrated to Brazil during the Holocaust. I never claimed to be Jewish, Santos told the New York Post. I am Catholic. Because I learned my maternal family had a Jewish background, I said I was Jew ish with a hyphen so that of course is open oh you're jewish oh you know a lot of people say they're jewish right uh, he identifies as a non-observant jew um it just goes on and on a brook college in new york fine institution he didn't graduate from there he didn't even go there he said it was a poor choice of words to claim he worked for goldman sachs or Citigroup. instead he worked for some other company that did some consultations with those two Wall Street giants. I mean, that's like saying I was once interviewed for a story uh, 
in the Los Angeles Times and you put down, well, I work for the Los Angeles Times. He goes on to say, I didn't graduate from any institution of higher learning. I'm embarrassed and sorry for having embellished my resume. I own up to that. We do stupid things in life. Probably the first sentence he's uttered that I'm not going to disagree with. And he also said, look, I mean, he was engulfed in debt. His mom was dying of cancer. And he had to pay off these bills. And he said, we had issues paying rent. Uh, it's the vulnerability of being human. I'm not embarrassed by it. And that does make me feel some sympathy for the guy. But he didn't. He should have just leveled with people. They would have understood. And what about the rent? Well, we didn't pay it off. I completely forgot about it. Okay. So, I don't know where this goes, but the New York Times piece says that senior House Republicans were aware of the inaccuracies and embellishments in the congressman-to-be's resume, and the topic became a running joke among insiders. Not that funny, especially maybe you voted for this guy, and now you feel like... You didn't know what you were getting. All right, story number two. And I try to condense this because what's fascinating here is now the subject of the Twitter files released by Elon Musk. And this is a reporting by a guy named David Zweig, who's working for Barry Weiss. If you don't know these names, Barry Weiss, former New York Times opinion editor who um, has started her own company now. As she, along with Matt Taibbi, were tapped by Elon Musk to go through the, these voluminous documents kind of like a truth commission. And so she had one of her reporters, Zweig, look into this. What we learn is that both the Biden administration and the Trump administration both pressured Twitter into taking down or neutralizing content related to COVID-19. But here's the difference. In the case of President Trump, the administration then was worried about panic buying uh, the idea that if misinformation was put out about a run on grocery stores, you know, it would be, lead to a panic. Except there was a run on grocery stores. So, I, I don't, you know, I may have misinterpreted that on first read, but, you know, I remember, you know, just lining up, to, you know, everybody was limited to two rolls of toilet paper. But that's all they did. And by the way, this isn't just Twitter. Google, Facebook, Microsoft, all involved in these meetings. Then the Biden administration comes to office. The difference here is, and why I think it's worse and more chilling, speaking as a journalist, is that the Biden team went after specific individuals to try to get them kicked off Twitter or suspended or, well, I'll just tell the story while you see what happened. So, for example, the Biden people, this is all according to notes and Slack channel stuff and texts, uh, focus on anti-vaxxer accounts, especially Alex Berenson. Alex Berenson is a former New York Times reporter who's, a lot of people think, just been on a crusade against any kind of vaccine. He would dispute that, but he's controversial to say the least. So there actually was uh, an aftermath of a meeting where Biden people had one tough question. Why was Alex Berenson still on Twitter? Is it really, should it really be up to an incumbent administration to pressure Twitter to get rid of somebody? Then, this month, the woman who's the head of U.S. public policy for Twitter reported to her colleagues the Biden team was very angry, that's the quote, very angry, and wanted to deplatform several accounts. So there must be several people out there, and I, since I don't know what the accounts are, I can't judge it, but, you know, 
Twitter has to make its own content moderation decisions. There's nothing wrong with, except for the cozy relationships, uh, a campaign, an individual, or an administration saying, hey, we think you ought to take a look at this because this is really getting traction and, and it's false. But then you get into this question of truth, falsehoods, and subjectivity. Because what was false when a lot of this was going on is now looked at it in a different light. And by the way, Twitter didn't completely roll over, express some concerns about free speech, but it ended up suppressing views from a number of doctors and scientific experts. And here's the example I cite. Martin Kulldorff, epidemiologist, Harvard Medical School. This is what he tweeted. Vaccines are important for older, high-risk patients and caregivers, but those with natural immunity and children don't need it. Twitter said that was false. Well, it's an expert's opinion that you may not agree with or disagree with, but it's not, you know, vaccines can kill you and Bill Gates is listening to the microchips. It was talking about which groups had the most need for these vaccines. So what happened to Dr. Koldorf is Twitter slapped a misleading label on his tweet and then shadow banned him. You You couldn't like it. You couldn't share it. Nobody was seeing it, even with the label. And I thought about this when I was on the set of Special Report last night. And I said, you know what? This is just like what happened with the Hunter Biden laptop story, except with life and death consequences. Um, And so that's the gist of it. There's also lots of stuff about other agencies, CIA, uh, State Department, Pentagon being involved in discussions with Twitter, not to mention the FBI, which I've talked about at great length, how cozy relationship that was and how so many ex-FBI agents worked for Twitter that they started their own Slack channel. All right, number three. Now, this I just thought was politically tone deaf. And actually, it also came up uh, during the uh, panel discussions. We get to cover a number of topics, of course, on that show, which is one of the nice things that people enjoy about the panel. So it's Christmas Eve, and like in much of the country, it's friggin' cold here. I mean, I didn't even go out that day. You know, I wake up, and it's 10 degrees when I left for work uh, yesterday morning. Or for work Sunday morning, excuse me. As I said, the day's running together. 11 degrees. And I'm not complaining, you know, we could be in Buffalo, right? But in any event, Texas Governor Greg Abbott decided this would be a pretty good time to send some busloads of migrants up to Kamala Harris's home, the vice president's official residence, which is on Massachusetts Avenue with a lot of other stately embassies uh, here in D.C. on Christmas Eve. It was about 18 degrees, but I can tell you the windchill was worse than that. So we haven't heard much about this since there was a spate of this over the spring and summer. And look, I think they kind of won the PR war when they sent, I guess that was DeSantis in Florida, sending a couple of plane loads of migrants who tried to cross the border or who were given an opportunity to come to the States to Martha's Vineyard. Why? Even though they had no place to sleep and, you know, people had to arrange to get them food and, and stuff. Martha's Vineyard is this extremely nice place in the middle of the summer or anytime. 
But the cold streets of Washington, D.C., when it's uh, sub-freezing temperatures, not so much. And so Abbott says, oh, we have a president who thinks that we have a president that is not securing the border. He's violating laws passed by Congress to secure the border. And on top of that, we have a president who is turning a blind eye to a security-based issue by allowing people on the terrorist watch list to come into the United States of America. All right, so he's just hurling all kinds of charges at a Biden. And the Biden administration is in denial on the border. It's a fair political issue. It's only going to get bigger with Republicans taking over the House. And there's no plan because the Biden government wants to drop the Trump era Title 42, turn them away before they have a chance to seek asylum in this country. And it looks like they'll probably get that. It might even be today. It depends on what the Supreme Court decides to do or not do. And even Dick Durbin, longtime Democrat, senior member of the leadership, says we're looking at a security and humanitarian nightmare that's only going to get worse. So it's not just Republicans saying this. In any event, there were some volunteers that showed up to help. I mean, I saw footage of some of these migrants and kids getting off the bus. You know, they were in T-shirts and jeans, maybe a sweatshirt. No, no. And so they were given blankets. They put on another bus that went to a church. People tried to help them. And I'm very glad to report that. But Christmas Eve, I mean, isn't that a little bit right out of Scrooge? I just think it's bad politics, leaving aside the merits of the debate about should the country share equal, equally in caring for migrants who happen to come across the southern border. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Story number four just pisses me off. Vladimir Putin saying, oh, I'm willing to negotiate over Ukraine. Uh, meanwhile, the previous day, he was his forces, his uh, Russian forces, were bombing Ukraine and has, have managed to plunge much of the country into coldness and darkness. You know, if you're, it's the middle of winter and you haven't got any heat, that's not a pleasant way to live. It just shows you there's no tactic to which Putin won't stoop. So, nonetheless, uh, some Ukrainians mark Christmas with uh, church gatherings. There's some debate about whether it should be celebrated there December 21st, or, excuse me, 25th, or January, early January, I believe the 7th. So, um, Putin says, oh, you know, the war was in defense. We only want to protect Russia's national interests. And here's the quote. We are ready to negotiate with all the participants in this process about some acceptable outcomes, but this is their business. It's not we who refuse to negotiations, but they. All right, just a minute. First of all, Vladimir Putin has made crystal clear. This is not a serious offer. He is not serious. His idea of serious peace talks is we freeze everything in place. Uh, Russia, as the aggressor, gets to keep all the land it has seized, going back to Crimea, by the way, in 2014, but also along the eastern part of the country, even though some of that has been recaptured by brave Ukrainian forces. In addition, when he says end this war, I mean, yeah, because I've read that as many as 100,000 Russians may have been killed. I'm sure he's under tremendous pressure, even though he controls 
uh, all of the media in this totalitarian society to end the war. But if you're not willing to talk about not keeping the ill-gotten land that you seized with a totally unprovoked invasion, then you're not serious. Meanwhile, a top Ukrainian minister is saying, well, let's have a peace summit uh, at the UN in February. We'll invite lots of people, but we won't invite Putin. And we'll come up with a deal and he can accept it or not. And that seems equally uh, unrealistic to me. I, I wish, uh, you know, there was a more uplifting thing to end on here on this segment because it, wouldn't it be nice to have something that was acceptable to all sides and everybody saves face and the killing would stop. Oh, the other precondition that Ukraine has is that peace talks can't start until we have the war crimes trials for Russians who committed war crimes. Now, Russians routinely committed war crimes, so I'm not at odds with that statement, but... You know, that's obviously a non-starter for the other side. And you got to decide what's more important. The war can't go on endlessly, although sometimes in the darker days, I say, well, maybe it can. Maybe it's just going to drag on for years. Story number five is just for fun. Mark Cuban, who I've uh, interviewed a couple times, very smart guy, uh, made his money in tech and also happens to own the Dallas Mavericks. So I saw him on the crowd when I was flipping around on the Christmas Day uh, NBA games. And he's on with Bill Maher, who's, you know, got this reputation now as the liberal who Fox loves to quote because he's often bashing the left. Well, he's bashing the left when the left goes too far. You know, you don't have to be excommunicated for taking on your own side, even as a commentator. So... Cuban is going on about how he doesn't live in California full-time. He's based, obviously, in Texas uh, because of taxes and regulation. And he goes on to say this. Look at what's happened in San Francisco. I mean, an entire industry is getting pushed out. You know, the whole technology industry went from, well, it's okay, this is growth, this is, you know, the new thing. And now, you know, it's just about people essing on the street. Mar laughed and he said, well, I was going to say, the cleaning up the S off the street industry is doing very well. Uh, Mar says, I don't want to add to the S on the street and take a dump on San Francisco. I love San Francisco. I think we all love San Francisco. It is a great city. Uh, Cuban, not so much. Uh, I've never been a big San Francisco fan at all. Uh, I know what they mean. It's a little clicky. Mar says, to which Cuban comes back, because you can say these things. Uh, I think this was some sort of podcast. Pretentious as F, right? Being in the tech industry, everybody's the smartest MFer in the world. But if you live in Silicon, if you in the world, if you live in Silicon Valley, you're a genius. You live there. You're in tech. What more proof could anybody possibly want? Okay. So now we got Mar to join in. It's sort of like, yeah, it's the kind of place like I know you think you're smarter. But you're not. First of all, you're not smarter than the people in Tulsa who come to my show anyway when he does his touring comedy. And they're a whole lot more fun. Cuban, I mean, the attitudes. I mean, it's just like we're tech bros. Of course we're smarter. You know, we went to Harvard. We went to MIT. We're in tech. You can't just hang. You don't know what the F is going on. Uh, 
<laughs> this, this is going on longer than I planned, but just to finish up. Uh, just because you're intact doesn't mean you're the smartest person in the world. F knows, says Cuban. Okay, you're good at one thing, says Mara, and that one thing is very important. But Cuban says, they're not even good at it. They just pretend that they're good at it, right? It's a lot of capital, so people follow the money. He says, you know what? It's just a business for all the pretentiousness and so forth. And there is, and the larger point here, I think, is well, both of them obviously having a good time cursing their asses off. <laughs> um, the idea that for so many years, the titans of tech and these companies that we admired, I mean, there was a time when Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg were seen as, you know, cool, hip, younger geniuses who were transforming our world. Everybody wanted to know about tech. You know, a lot of the same stuff in the Twitter files could be going on in, in the automobile industry or the semiconductor chip industry, but who cares? Like, we don't even know the names. But here you've got these larger-than-life figures who were put on magazine covers and so forth. But now, the tide has turned because of a lot of stupid mistakes uh, by these companies. It's one of the things Elon Musk is trying to point out with the Twitter files. I mean, people say he's politicizing it. Look at what we had before where they're just shadow-banning people, mostly on the right. Even for things like, I meant to mention this earlier, if you quote a published study, that could be deemed misinformation and was deemed misinformation. In the scientific world, you know, whether people like the study or not, if it's been peer-reviewed, then it's at least worth quoting as part of what we call scientific debate. So now, people like now Musk, because the mainstream media doesn't like him, because he uh, at least has some sympathy for the right, as opposed to just being a total left-winger, uh, Zuckerberg, because of privacy concerns and Russian hacking and all of that, uh, Bezos and on and on, they're looked at much more skeptically. They're covered much more skeptically. The stocks have dropped. Uh, Tesla stock is way down. That's what made Elon Musk a hero to the left before he decided to get into the business of owning a social media company, which, as I love to say again and again, turns out it's not rocket science. It may be harder. Hey, hope you, uh, if you're off... Between Christmas and New Year's, more power to you. More time to listen to the podcast. Would appreciate if you subscribe. Amazon Music is one place you can do that, or Apple iTunes, or a bunch of other places. And I'll be back here tomorrow, and I hope to see you then with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.